Father, thank you for your word. Um, and Lord, we do thank you for the gift of family. Thank you for um, the, the establishment of that and for the way in which it functions as a bedrock for our society. And Lord, I pray that we as a church would appreciate that gift and we would do all within our power to encourage and to strengthen that family unit um, for the betterment of our church, for the holiness of your body, um, and for the establishment of, of this society. So, Lord, now as we turn our attention to your word, we do ask for your help. We pray that as we look at this passage, um, you would give us fresh eyes and your spirit would convict us anew as we read these words and, and come to understand what they mean. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us not to have blind eyes or deaf ears to what your word says, but that it would penetrate our hearts and our minds and that we would come away from this time with a greater appreciation for your character, for your nature, and that we would seek to walk more closely with you because of it. So we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the theme of Mother's Day, I think the masters of making excuses are children. And if you want to come to a great example of children's excuses, look no further than bedtime. Trying to establish bedtime for your children can be an absolute battle, sometimes a warfare. Now, our family has been spared by this because our children fortunately love to sleep. They are difficult to wake up. So I'm not necessarily speaking from experience here, but based on the conversations I've had with other parents, I recognize that this at times can be a colossal battle. And so uh, one newspaper recently polled parents and asked them to give their kids best excuses for why they weren't ready for bed or why they didn't want to go to bed. And, and these get really great. I mean, this is better than just like the potty excuse, right? Which is a dead ringer every time. I mean, you don't want to risk that. So you always let them go. So one mom said, my four-year-old won't fall asleep because she says she's thinking about what she will look like when she's asleep. And that's keeping her awake. Another dad wrote in and he said, I don't get why people think getting kids to bed is so hard. I mean, all my son needs is a drink of water, four songs from daddy, a trip to the potty, a Superman flight to bed, an inventory of his stuffed animals, a tissue, two more songs, and then repeating that seven more times. <laughs> I mean, is that too much to ask? I guess not. One mom said, I've seen my kids use many tactics to stall bedtime, but I must admit my son getting back out of bed to present me with the booger that he still didn't want in his nose was definitely a first. And finally, the classic, my toddler's latest excuse for not going to sleep is, I'm too tired to sleep. That kid's going to be a genius, I know. So this is not a plug for a parenting class, but if any of your kids have used those examples come out to a parenting class. No. So as cute and as adorable as those excuses can be in children, um, when adults give excuses like that, reasons to excuse their behavior, to get out of responsibility, or to keep from obedience, it doesn't look cute or adorable. It looks ridiculous. It looks pathetic, and it looks immature. And so we actually get a picture in our past this morning of an adult looking that pathetic and immature as he seeks to avoid what God is asking him to do. And yes, that's Moses, the great hero of the faith, the one we all look to as a hero of faith. In this, pas in this passage, does everything in his power to avoid being obedient to God 
and following faithfully in what God has called him to do. And so we started this uh, last week looking at Moses' excuses, and in total, Moses gives four excuses as to why he cannot obey God's specific and clear command on his life. And so we looked at two last week, and we will look at two more this week. And as we conclude the passage, we're going to see Moses move from this place of disobedience to obedience. And the thing that helps him move from that place of disobedience to obedience is his trust in the sufficiency of God, his trust that God will be enough to get him through what he's asking him to do. So we're in Exodus chapter 4 this morning. Um, But because this really is right in the middle of the discourse we started last week, I want us to do some review as to what we talked about last week um, in Exodus chapter 3. And so as you remember, this is all the burning bush narrative. And so uh, Moses is being addressed by God through the burning bush. And in in chapter 3, his two excuses center around his ability. The first time he says, who am I that I should go and speak to Pharaoh? And of course, we talked about the fact that that's actually a statement of false humility. Real humility, real humility always looks like obedience. If Moses truly understood who he was and who God was and who this God was who was asking him to obey, his response would have not been, who am I? But it would have been, here I am. What can I do? How can I obey? And so um, after that statement of false humility, he then gives a statement about God's character and nature. Well, what do I say if the people ask who you are? And of course, that's the famous passage where God reveals his covenant name, his name as Yahweh, or I am, the unpronounceable name um, by which he is called throughout all generations. And that name speaks to his self-existence, the fact that he is a non-contingent being. He doesn't depend on anything else in this world for existence, and just, a, just as that fire burned Without using any fuel, it was a self-existing fire, so God exists that way as well. And so after introducing his covenant name, then um, God lays out his plan for Moses, what obedience will look like as Moses goes forward and goes down to deliver the people from the Egyptians. And as you remember, as we read it, it's actually a pretty silly plan, right? From our perspective... It looks like a ridiculous plan. There's no army. There's, there's no council of war. There's no strategy. Moses is commanded to just go and talk. That's all he's supposed to do. But he's not just to say his words. He's to say the words of God. And that is where his efficacy and his power comes from. If he accurately reports the word of God, that word is powerful and will bring about results and will be effective for the deliverance of his people. And so with all that as context, then we pick up in chapter 4 with verse 1. So then Moses said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. Now, um, if we were thinking about excuses to get out of obedience to the Lord, Moses uses a dead ringer right here, right? How many of us have used this excuse before, the what if excuse, before God asks us to do something? What if this happens? What if I obey and it results in this? And so we use the what if excuse to get out of our obedience to God. Now, The what-if excuse focuses on results. 
I'm only going to obey if I can guarantee the results. So it's focused on a view of success, wanting to succeed in what God has asking us to do, or a fear of failure. I'm only going to do this if I can guarantee that I will succeed and not fail. But automatically we see that by asking what if, we're introducing conditions to our obedience. We are qualifying the way in which we obey. I will only obey if I get this result. I will only follow through on what you've asked me to do if you can promise me that this will happen. Now, it's instructive to look at what Moses asks the Lord to do. What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? So, can Moses control whether the people believe his message or will even listen to him? No. No, Moses cannot control that result. Only God can control that result. So notice that Moses is excusing himself from obedience over something that he has no control over. And the only thing he can control, he is actually choosing not to do. All Moses can control is his response to the Lord and his obedience to what God is asking him to do. And he is excusing himself from obeying the Lord in that way over things that he has no control over. And so, as we think about this, this what-if excuse, we recognize that this is something that every single one of us deals with in our walk with the Lord as well. We like to place conditions on our obedience to the Lord as well. I'll obey you, Lord, but only so long as my paycheck isn't hindered. I'll obey you, Lord, so long as I don't have to move and so long as I can stay here where I want to be and where I'm comfortable. I'll obey you, Lord, as long as you don't make me do anything too difficult or suffer too much. And so all of us like to employ the what-if excuse. And the point is, when we come to a situation like this where God gives us a specific command and asks us to do something, our focus cannot be on the things that we cannot control. Our focus cannot be on the response of other people to our obedience or to things that are outside of our control. Our response simply has to be on what is God calling me to do and how am I to be faithful to that call as, he, as we seek to obey him. So let's look at how the Lord responds to this excuse that Moses gives. We'll read verses 2 through 9. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it turned into a serpent and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he reached out his hand and caught it, and it turned into a staff in his hand, so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, put your hand inside the fold of your robe. So he put his hand inside the fold, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, put your hand Um, Back in the fold again, and when he took it out of the fold, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. So So if they will not believe you nor pay attention to the evidence of the first sign, they may believe the evidence of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs nor pay attention to what you say, then you shall take some of the water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water which you take from the Nile will turn into blood on the dry ground, which, of course, we know the fulfillment of that promise in in one of the plagues, the first of the plagues. So what's the Lord getting at with these signs? 
Why are these signs in response to Moses' what-if question, to the conditions that he places on his obedience? Well, I think there's two positive things, and then, then there's an ironic aspect to this as well. First of all, if the Lord had wanted to demonstrate his power to Moses, he could have simply had the staff turned to a snake right there, or he could have had his hand turned leprous right there. And so what's the significance of the fact that Moses must throw the staff down and must thrust his hand in his cloak before God performs those signs? Well, I think there is significance to that. I think God is teaching Moses the way his obedience works, that God works through his obedience and that Moses' obedience to God's word will be effective, that as he throws the staff down, as he obeys, God does his work. And so I think that's a picture of how Moses is to work through the deliverance of the people in Israel, that as he obeys and goes, God will accomplish that work. I also think that it's, it's an illustration of God's power, that if Moses is concerned about the people responding to his message and the people obeying him, I think this sign shows him that power, that if God can take something that was inanimate and give it life and then turn it back to something dead, and then if God can take something that's alive, make it dead, and then turn it alive again, I think God has the power to change people's hearts. If God can change the the physical cellular makeup of a wooden staff and turn it into a living snake and then turn it back again, I think God can control people's hearts and He can control whether they will believe and whether they will turn and whether they will listen. And so that should have also been um, a boost in Moses' confidence as he sought to obey. But the last thing I think these signs teach us is something ironic. And it's that an inanimate, dead staff obeys God better than Moses does at this point. Even the staff listens to the word of God and obeys and does what God tells it to do while Moses is sitting here giving excuses for why he doesn't need to obey and trying to get out of what God has called him to do. And so I think God meant this sign also to be a bit of an ironic teaching and example for Moses as he thought about this. So as we conclude this first excuse and we think about these signs that God has given to Moses, what's the point of application for us? The point of application centers on whether we put qualifications on our obedience to God as well. Are we prone to make excuses to try to get out of obeying God, or are we willing to obey God no matter the cost? No matter what lengths we have to go to, no matter what we have to give up, are we willing to obey God to that degree? Or are we constantly looking for excuses, things that we can't control in order to get out of doing what God has asked us to do? I think that's a great question to evaluate this morning. So we pick up in verse 10 with Moses' second excuse or fourth, so the final one. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. But the Lord said to him, Who made the human mouth? And who makes anyone unable to speak, or deaf, or able to see, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then, go, and I myself will be with your mouth, and will instruct you in what you are to say. And he said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. 
And so here we see the conclusion of Moses' conversation with God. And what I believe is the foundation of all of the excuses that he has gone through this whole time. Some people will try to maybe cast a more compassionate view of Moses through this passage, and that's not necessarily wrong. And they try to show that he changes and he grows, and, and we can understand why he would have some of these excuses. But I think this last phrase, please, Lord, send the message by whoever you will, meaning not me, shows us that that's been at the core of everything Moses has said through this whole conversation. All of these excuses are a desperate attempt by Moses to get out of obeying the word of the Lord. So that's been motivating all of these things. And so his last excuse focuses on his ability to speak. Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now, notice the irony with which Moses speaks, right? Please, Lord, let your servant disobey you, <laughs> right? It's ridiculous to speak in that way, such, such false humility as he comes before the Lord. If you really view him as your Lord, and if you are his servant, then you will obey him no matter what he says. But his focus here is on his ability to speak. I have never been eloquent. Literally, that phrase eloquent means a man of words, a man of smooth words, someone who's able to speak well. And so Moses' focus here is on his physical ability to speak. Now, we don't know whether this means Moses had forgotten the Egyptian language, and so he was going to struggle going back and to communicate to the Egyptians there. We don't know if it means he, he had a speech impediment. We're not really sure. But Moses, for whatever reason, is using his ability to speak as an excuse to get out of obeying the Lord. Now, I think there's a number of reasons that he would have used this excuse. If he struggled to speak or felt like he wasn't a competent speaker, it could have been motivated by pride. He could have felt embarrassed when he went in front of people and tried to speak. And so it was that, that feeling of pride and embarrassment that would have kept him from wanting to obey the Lord. It also could have just been an issue of comfort, that Moses felt uncomfortable when he spoke before people and, and had to construct some sort of speech to tell people. That could have been uncomfortable for him. And so either way, he was allowing that embarrassment or that feeling of, of discomfort to keep him from obeying a clear and direct command of the Lord. Now, the Lord's response to this is, is wonderful, right? Verse 11, but the Lord said, who made the human mouth? Now, why does the Lord say that? Why does he go to that point as he's addressing Moses here? It's almost like the Lord is saying, do you think your weaknesses and insufficiencies are a surprise to me? Do you think I don't know how you struggle to speak? Do you think the struggle that you have speaking is, is something I didn't know about? No, I made you. I made every part of you. I made you with those weaknesses and those insufficiencies. That's not a surprise to me. I know about them because I made you. Every single part of you I know. And so those aren't an excuse for you to get out of following me or being obedient. I am calling you to be obedient in spite of that difficulty, that embarrassment, or the discomfort that that might cause in your life as you seek to obey me. Those aren't a surprise to God. God knows exactly what he has made each of us with and what he has called us to. And so over the years, I've heard this excuse used lots of times for people to get out of obeying the Lord. 
How many of us have used our, our, uh, the struggle we have to focus to get out of reading God's Word? I have a hard time sitting down and focusing on the Word, and so I'm just not going to read it. Well, you think God doesn't know how difficult it is for you to focus on the Word, to sit down and to read? And do you think He's going to accept that as an excuse not to read your Bible daily? Not to be legalistic, but I think we all do this in our lives as we, we do different things like that. And so the things that God has given us are not excuses to get out of obeying His Word. They don't give us a free pass just because it's hard. But in fact, we have to obey because it's hard, in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of the difficult things that God has given us to deal with. It is not an excuse to get away with disobedience. We have to obey in spite of those things. So, as Moses concludes with his final plea for God to please send anyone other than me, we'll see how God responds in verses 14 through 15. So then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? Now I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be overjoyed. Now you are to speak to him and to put the words in his mouth, and I myself will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will instruct you in what you are to do. So the Lord gives Moses a concession but he doesn't give him what he wants. Moses wants to get out of it completely, and the Lord's not about to let him do that. But he does send someone to help. So, Moses, I'm not going to make you do this alone. I'm going to send someone to assist you and to help you in this process. But notice that Moses still has to speak. God has just reduced the audience. Rather than Moses speaking to the whole nation, Moses now has to communicate to Aaron, and then Aaron will speak to the whole nation. Now, it appears that Aaron uh, functions in this role only at the very beginning, maybe only at the end of of chapter 4 here, that Aaron is the one doing the speaking, and that Moses grows into his role and his ability to address the nation and Pharaoh. But either way, Aaron comes to help Moses at this crucial beginning point of his ministry. Now, I think what's interesting with this is the assumption in Moses' mind that it is skillful speech or the ability to speak well that will make God's message effective. Did you catch that in his excuse? I'm not able to do or to obey you because the message requires someone skillful or fluent in speech to deliver the message. The assumption is that for God's message to be effective, it must be given in a smooth and fluent, effective way. But that's not at all what God says. His emphasis is not on the messenger, but it's on the message. Verse 14, And moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be overjoyed, and you are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I myself will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will instruct you in what you are to do. There's nothing said there about being being eloquent, as Moses is concerned about, or being smooth in your speech. What is most important to being an effective messenger for God is how closely you deliver His Word. Do you speak the words of God clearly and without compromise, or are you seeking to put your own spin on them and to communicate in your own way? 
And so the measure of an effective message is not how skillfully it's delivered or how flashy it is, but the measure of a successful message is how closely it sticks to the Word of God. We measure the effectiveness of a message by its truth and veracity, not by how it's packaged or delivered. Now, when I think about this, I, and you'll have to forgive me for this, but I think about the way I drink coffee. As you know, well, some of you know, I do drink a fair bit of coffee. Um, and sometimes I think good coffee is wasted on me because I really don't care what kind of coffee I drink. I will drink cold coffee. I will drink day-old coffee. I will drink cheap coffee. It really doesn't matter. So long as it's regular and it's black, I will drink it. And now I, can, I know you're all thinking like, okay, let's try this. <laughs> um, but I really don't care if it's the right kind of brew, if it's dark or light. None of that really matters. As long as it's black and it's regular, I will drink it. And so that's because I'm not drinking coffee for the taste or because I want some fancy brew. I'm drinking it for the caffeine. Yes, I'm just going to admit it. That's why I'm drinking the coffee. And so I don't really care the package it comes in so long as I get that caffeine, right? So at the risk of being flippant, that's the same thing that Moses is saying or that God is saying to Moses here as well. It doesn't matter the packaging around the Word of God. It doesn't matter how smooth you present it or how eloquent you are. What matters is whether you present the truth of God's Word faithfully. And do you submit yourselves to it, and do you listen to God's Word? That's what matters, and that's what God is trying to communicate to Moses over and over and over again throughout all of these excuses. And so as we think about the big idea of this passage, Moses wants to make all of this about him about his weakness, his inability, the struggles that he has, how uncomfortable it's going to make him. And God keeps pulling Moses out of that and focusing on him. It's not about you, Moses. It's about me. It's about my power. It's about my glory. And it's about my ability. And your obedience to me is what is most important in this scenario. And so it appears that Moses finally gets that point. So let's keep reading. Verse 16, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. And you shall take in your hand this staff, with which you shall perform the signs. Then Moses departed and returned to his father-in-law Jethro. And he said to him, please let me go, that I may return to my brothers who are in Egypt, and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. So notice that in verse 17 and in verse 20, it's repeated twice that Moses takes the staff of God with him as he goes on this mission. Now what is significant about that? The staff has just been given to Moses as a symbol of God's presence and power with him. And so as Moses goes intentionally taking that staff with him, it's clear that he recognizes it is the power and presence of God that accomplishes this mission, not my own strength or ability. If the people are freed, it's not because I'm an eloquent speaker. If the people are freed, it's not because I'm so good at this job or such a great leader. The people are freed because God is with me. 
And so taking that staff represents that Moses has moved from a place of self-sufficiency, trusting in his own strength and ability, and has moved to trusting in God for his power to obey. And so we see that mirrored throughout the Exodus account. Um, They create the Ark of the Covenant by which they carry the presence of God with them through the wilderness. Before the Ark is built, there's the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that goes before them and is the presence of God with them. And so this is one step in that direction as God is preparing Moses for that job. As Moses speaks to his father-in-law, notice that it's a mirror of what he eventually will say to Pharaoh, please let me go that I may return to my brothers in Egypt. And so we see a precursor for the message that he'll be bringing to Pharaoh. And so as he asks to be released from his familial bonds to Jethro, Jethro is an agent of grace to him, and he says, go in the peace of the Lord. And so that further highlights the hardness of Pharaoh's heart as Moses seeks to, to deliver the people from, Moses and to, or from Egypt and to let the people go, and Pharaoh continues to say no. So then we pick up in verse 21, and we'll finish out the chapter. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. But then you shall say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go so that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go, so behold, I am going to kill your son, your firstborn. But it came about at the overnight encampment on the way that the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. So Zipporah took up a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, You are indeed a groom of blood to me. So he left him alone. And at that time she said, You are a groom of blood because of the circumcision. Now the Lord said to Aaron, Go to meet Moses in the wilderness. And so he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which, with which he had sent him and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel, and Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses, and he performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed, and when they heard the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed low and they worshipped. And so, in terms of a plot development, this passage moves Moses from being a shepherd in Midian to Egypt in order to accomplish the redemption of God's people. But there are some significant themes that are woven through this passage as well. Notice that God is already predicting the death of the firstborn in uh, in Egypt. And that mirrors what has happened in Exodus chapter 1, where Pharaoh was attempting to kill the children of Israel, and now God is promising that he will be killing the children of Pharaoh. And so it is in that context then, I'm going to kill your son, your firstborn, that then we have this story of Moses and Zipporah and their son's circumcision. Now, we don't have time, and I know you're all thankful, right? We don't have time to get into that here this morning, but we are going to deal with that on Wednesday night. So if you want to know the specific meaning (laughs) or my attempt at the specific meaning of that story, come out on Wednesday night for that explanation. But I think where this story about Moses and his son fits into this overall narrative is that God is holding Moses to the same standard that he's holding Pharaoh. And so it's a further explanation of the holiness of God, that 
God is going to hold Pharaoh accountable to this standard to let his firstborn go. And if he does not, God will require his son of him. But that same standard is applied to Moses. If Moses does not obey God 100% and follow God in all things, including circumcising his children, God will take his children from him as well. And so it's a reminder of the standard that God holds all of his people to. And so we end with verse 31, the people believed and when they heard the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed low and they worshiped. God's redemption of his people always results in worship. And that is hopefully our, our response today as well as we turn to the table and prepare for communion. As we celebrate God's redemption of us from the bondage of sin and as we recognize what he accomplished on our behalf for that, it should result in worship. And so today is a chance for us to worship our Lord and to recognize what he accomplished for us on the cross. So let us pray, um, and then we will move into our time of communion. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for its clarity and for its truth. And thank you even for the unvarnished way it shows Moses' character. And we see in Moses and in his example so much of the same struggles that, that we have. We attempt to excuse our disobedience and to find ways out of simply following you faithfully. And Lord, I pray that you would convict us of that this morning and that you would help us to follow you anew with, re- with renewed devotion um, and with all of our lives. Thank you, Father, for the table. Thank you for the chance to come and to remember your sacrificial death on the cross, the atonement that you purchased for our behalf as well as the new life that we look forward to with you. So we thank you for that truth in Jesus' name. Amen.